Hello, Chris here with another installment of the Make It Podcast. And today on the podcast, we have a conversation with director Jackie Phillips. And uh, we are very excited for this episode. Jackie was actually the first person I believe we interviewed uh, in what was ultimately sort of the the mother of uh, this podcast that we have today uh, when we would go out and just interview people um, and not people, but creatives on the street, independents in, in film on the streets uh, with just a handheld recorder. And that turned into this podcast. So um, definitely proud of this interview that you're about to listen to. I think you're going to enjoy it as well. And with that little bit of background onto her bio, Jackie Phillips is a director and producer based in Los Angeles. Uh, she's a graduate of NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, where many of our interviewees have been from, actually. Jackie's debut feature, Wild Man, now titled Adult Interference, is a festival-winning comedy releasing this September. She was recently nominated for Best Director at the 2019 Method Fest Film Festival for the short film, It's Your Call. As a former Google product manager, Jackie uses her unique position and understanding at the intersection of tech and entertainment to develop innovative content. And now, without further ado, I give you the living embodiment of the sixth degree of separation with Kevin Bacon, director Jackie Phillips. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. everyone. My name is Jackie Phillips, and I'm a director and producer primarily. I uh, began working in theater in New York and LA, and now focusing on film and television. Currently, I have a short film called It's Your Call that's making the festival rounds and is going to be playing at Palm Springs International next week. And um, my Pride and Joy feature film directorial debut is called Wild Man, also known as Adult Interference, which is going to be released uh, early fall of this year. Awesome, 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 Jackie. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Make It Podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Anytime. And um, this is really special um, for those listening, for me, because you were one of the very first people to kind of put your thoughts uh, down on on wax, as as they say uh, in hip hop, uh, <laughs> uh, for, for this. You know, back in the day, uh, I think you saw me, this was like two years ago. I would travel around to, you know, everywhere and just have a handheld recorder and just press record and you would kind of talk into my my old journalism handheld recorder, right? 
Oh, I remember. Yeah. I think the first time we did it was at the Cinequest Film Festival a couple years ago. Yes, exactly. And I remember we were recording and it was uh, me, you and Serena. And there was a crazy man outside the gates. (laughs) 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 I kept thinking this is either going to be the worst recording ever or... Or the most hilarious one, like the, like the, or maybe it'll be like, you know, uh, evidence (laughs) (laughs) in court that that this man was insane. But uh, it turned out all those recordings weren't up to Bonza standards. So we just said, let's make a podcast out of it. But you were at the forefront of that and, and encouraging me and Nick to keep doing it. And so thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, I think it's great creating a resource for, uh, filmmakers and creatives um, to talk and listen to each other. It's so important to have community. Yeah, I agree. And I, I the, there's a trade-off here where obviously, you know, our guests come on and they give us content. But the flip side is, is that we want it to be a really valuable conversation and one that the creative can send out as part of their resume package, uh, even if they wanted to. Um and so we really take the interviews really seriously and we try to make it uh, great, uh, not just sonically, but but to pull out information that you might not share uh, in any other forum. And, and obviously, independent filmmakers don't get the opportunity opportunity to do that as, as often as we'd like. And there are other independent filmmaking podcasts, but they kind of I feel like they spend 80 percent of the time, you know, kicking filmmakers in the ass about all the things they're not doing or should be doing or how stupid they are. And instead we're trying to kind of lift, lift those creatives up. And if there's a lesson that comes out of it for them, great. Sure. You know, so, uh, there is a game and the game is, is the Jackie Phillips Rolodex game. And I was, (laughs) (laughs) we were introduced to this game at the, at CineQuest and here, Here's how the game works, folks. Uh, You get a bottle of tequila. Oh, no. (laughs) And you say a name. It could be anyone's name that is in the movie business. And if Jackie has the name or number in her phone, then you have to drink. And if she doesn't have the name or number in her phone, then she has to drink. And let me explain to you something. Jackie's never drunk. <laughs> uh, at least not during that game. Not during that um, game. No. Yes. Yeah, you know everybody. And um, and to our astonishment and, and being stumbly drunk, you know, 30 minutes later, um, how important is, is networking to, to a filmmaker? And how did you, when did you realize you needed to be great at it? Well, I will start by saying that I am not great at it, um, and it is very important, and it's something that I'm always working on being better at. Um, I'm fortunate in that um, I made a lot of connections um, and kind of got my Rolodex uh, by working as an assistant, um, moving to L.A., giving up um, a corporate job in tech, came here, got really humble, um, worked as an assistant, and that's how I started to make uh, connections, just by being 
in the right place at the right time and doing the right things for the people that needed them done. So that's how I got my connections early on. I think what's important to remember is it's not just handing out business cards or meeting someone at a party, but um, fostering those relationships later, whether it's something as simple as following that person on social media, shooting them a DM when you see they've done something or letting them know that you're doing something uh, and kind of keeping those connections going. I think that's uh, the important part of networking that doesn't get talked about that much. Yeah, it really is. You, you build those relationships um, uh, in a one-on-one kind of way and, and sort of in the dark, as people have said in the past. I know that me and you have, you've been willing to come out at midnight and have a cocktail with me at a bar just to talk to me yeah. for an hour. Um, and those things go a long way and they, and they really work against anything else that, that's, that um, comes up in the process of working as a team to, to get a film out. For example, you mentioned Wildman earlier. Um, I think this audience knows that we're part of that for sure. Um, and it's challenging and that whole thing is challenging, but if you have those connections and you have a history and there's been one-on-one time, you can overcome those challenges together. So I think, um, that is definitely true. You, you mentioned tech as well as, as a background. I'm, you're a really interesting person and maybe you're close to a polymath here, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, we've had a lot of smart people on this podcast, a lot of smart people, and you're, uh, definitely one of them. You majored in English, um, uh, and theater, I- right? Yeah, uh, I went to NYU for undergrad, um, mm-hmm. Tisch School of the Arts, uh, yeah. acting and directing. So not yeah. so much English. <laughs> right. Well, I should have known that. But. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of uh, rolling around on the ground, discovering my breath. Uh, yeah. That was a big part of my college experience, as well as, you know, being smack dab in the middle of New York City, which was the best education. Yeah, it's it's. There's nothing like it, especially if you want to go into theater and just sort of understand uh, that world. When did you know that was something you wanted to do? Oh, I was very, very young. I grew up in Minnesota, um, right outside the Twin Cities. And it happens to be one of the places in America that has the most regional and professional theaters per capita than anywhere else and still does true? to this day. It's a super artistic uh, community in the Twin Cities. And wow. um, I was fortunate enough to, um, I think it started on a field trip, maybe in kindergarten, where we went to the Minneapolis Children's Theater Company. This is a place where they do multi-million dollar productions. And I saw kids and adults on stage. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And, um, I grew up in, in sort of that and ended up on that stage, uh, eventually and took classes and workshops and auditioned. Um, and I grew up in the theater community in Minneapolis. So there wasn't really ever a doubt for me that I would go to somewhere like New York city and study theater. Mm. Even though, you know, 
looking back, maybe business or something else would have been uh, a little more helpful, but, um, it was, it was always my path. Helpful in, in maybe some, some way that the world expects, but certainly not helpful to your own heart and and your soul, but yeah, yeah. I think more, I think more in that when you, when you are innately a creative, um, you don't necessarily also come with the skill set to manage that creativity in the world. And I think that's um, a big part of arts education on sort of the university level that just doesn't exist and really should. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And, um, we, we need to get into that a little bit too. And also just your, your, um, how can I term this? You're, you seem to be pretty dedicated and involved in, in making sure women have a voice in film and in the creative arts. And we should talk about that at, at some point in this conversation as well. And, um, and sort of the bond you've created with a couple of females that we've uh, female creatives that we've actually had on this podcast um, as well. But you do have more than one stripe. Um, mm-hmm. You came out of school and, and went into tech. So how did that happen? That uh, it wasn't. Or why did that happen? Yeah, actually? Uh, uh, it was a very uh, circuitous route. Um, it wasn't immediately after school. Um I stayed in New York City and was doing the starving artist thing, directing plays and black box theaters downtown, working with my friends, um, working a day job. I um, did Williamstown Theater Festival and um, went on tour in Europe with a play. And I started writing. I started writing um, about things that interested me. Um, which at the time and also still is, is, uh, fashion. And specifically it was, um, how film and television and the clothes that we see on our favorite TV shows were affecting what people were buying and shopping. Mm -hmm. And this is early days of, I see that, um, jacket on summer on the OC and I want to buy it. How do I get it? And you go to the internet and there wasn't really a resource for how do I track down that jacket? Nowadays you can shop by picture. Mm-hmm. Then you couldn't. Um, and through um, my writing, I was writing for blogs, um, early web magazines, um, and some of the portals um, like in style uh, that they had just started to open up online to put their content out. I mean, I'm, I'm really dating myself here, but we're talking about like 2004. <laughs> like these are still the early days of Google. And through that writing, I was contacted by a stealth startup in Silicon Valley that was looking for someone who had um, marketing and fashion experience. And I was like, well, sure. I've covered fashion week for online 
media companies, but why? I had no idea why they were contacting me. But in a matter of days, I was flowing out to San Francisco. I had a day long um, interview with CEO and um, engineers and these computer scientists, and it was a completely different world than I had ever experienced. And at five o'clock that day, after I'd been in a conference room all day, they said, Hey, can you stay? And when can you start? And <laughs> all of a sudden, my world flipped upside down. I wasn't living in New York City anymore. I was living out of a suitcase in San Francisco, and I was working with an all male team of engineers and computer scientists and some of the smartest people I have ever met in my entire life. And uh, they were coming up with brand new visual technology to be able to um, recognize faces, something that we all take for granted today. Um, Mm -hmm. RIA, the company, was uh, one of the first to do it. And also to be able to um, shop visually and, and use pictures to find what you're looking for online to buy. And that startup was acquired by Google, and um, several of us were absorbed into Google. And um, all of a sudden, I'm working at the headquarters in Mountain View at Google with a BFA in acting <laughs> and tried traveling to teams in Zurich and London and uh, Munich, Berlin, and uh, Really, I had learned how to speak a completely different language. I learned how to speak computer science. And I realized that most of the skills that I had learned working in theater, producing theater, directing theater, bringing together different personalities, different departments, elements, design, um, were the same skills that I needed as a product manager who was bringing together engineering concepts with user interface and marketing and user experience. um, Absolutely. So it all kind of worked together pretty harmoniously for a long time. And I really liked um, that world. And I will say the most important thing that that detour gave me was uh, the stability and security to pay off those student loan debts and um, learn what it meant to work in a company, in a corporate environment, um, with different kinds of people, navigating different kinds of personalities, and, um, you know, really kind of gave me the MBA education um, that I didn't have to go to school for. Yeah, you got some uh, real life MBA going on, which it's funny because that was always um, Bonsai's approach, and Nick, my my co founder Nick, and you know, our approach to to film was, you know, we could go, and this is years and years and years ago, but you know, we could spend eighty to a hundred and sixty thousand dollars to go to film school, or we could put that money actually into uh, the film community and then get taken for a ride, you know, sort okay. of, and, and get a on the job education that has, that doesn't result in debt. And so it was always play money 
you know, whereas if you go to school, you have the debt, you have to pay it off and then you still have to go get in the real world and the, in the market. So I really, uh, enjoyed that. So, so thank you for that, um, for that story, but it, you end up in Google <laughs> as a, <laughs> as a, as a theater major. Um, and, uh, and, and it is kind of true though. Like Steve jobs would always say, yeah, it was his background in humanities that enabled him to build tech that was um, seamless and not in your face. And, you know, kind of without Steve Jobs, all of our devices would still be named, you know, the Sony UX 9000-456 Pro, right? Sure, and, sure. And, and just his understanding that, like, that's fucking stupid. And, like, people want uh, the technology to move out of the way but they still wanted to work and be doing something, you know, for you. Um, so, so I totally get it, but you didn't stop there. You went on and co-founded life crowd, correct? I, yeah, I was, they poached me from Google, um, and, <laughs> were, and were also my, uh, gateway to Los Angeles. Uh, now, now who is, who is they, uh, 310 Labs, um, mm -hmm. and they're the founder of 310 Labs, Bonco, uh, longtime entrepreneur uh, in Silicon Beach, so in LA, and uh, they were starting a new company called Life Crowd, which aimed to take people offline to socialize, so sort of that the anti-Facebook, but bringing people together in communities and mm -hmm. specific ways like, um, a cupcake decorating class or a, um, couples massage class, um, activities, events, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I joined as, um, sort of their chief product officer and we had a little office out in Santa Monica and I left Google came to Silicon beach, came to LA was very happy because I was close to, um, all of my longtime friends and collaborators who had kind of migrated from New York city to LA. And um, so let me interject there and I'm, I'm sorry for interjecting, but, but this is yeah. the, this is the critical part that, um, I, I think is, is the decisions that we all make. And so you have this job, it's working out well, you work at Google, you, I believe um, we had talked in the past about you being the, the first person with the type of degree you had to work at Google headquarters and then being a woman on top of that in a male dominated field. So in a lot of ways you, you kind of, you know, had done something you know, revolutionary. And, um, but you make the decision to go down to Santa Monica, um, was, was art and creativity calling you that pulled you down there? Was it really just your friends? Was the, was the opportunity financially so much better? What was that decision making like for you? Uh, definitely was not a financial decision it, that, um, <laughs> uh, I walked away from uh, a lot of incentives and, uh, it was both friends and creativity. And in my life, they've always been deeply, deeply intertwined. So, um, friends that I had gone to NYU with folks that I'd met at Williamstown theater festival, 
um, people from New York, there had been this huge migration over about five years while I had been up in the Bay Area. And they were all starting to move out of theater and try different things, working in film, working in TV. Some were still acting. Some had moved to directing. A lot of people were writing or starting stand-up. Some were starting families in a new place. And they were working together. They were getting together on the weekends and shooting shorts, shooting little web series, you know, handheld camera style, and they were creating and um, they were starting the theater companies and putting up productions and, you know, kind of just making stuff and making it work. And I felt a little left out. I felt like I, I like, oh, I have this career and everybody's still creating and figuring it out. And mm-hmm. um, Life Crowd and 310 Labs was the gateway to get me down here without having to fully leave what felt stable and also gave me the opportunity to reconnect with um, my creative side and the people that I had sort of come up with. Uh, and all of a sudden I got to be the person who was making short films on the weekends and, um, running around going to stand up shows and doing improv and trying to write in coffee shops on the weekend. And it was more fulfilling than anything that I'd done in the six previous years. Yeah. I really relate with that quite a bit. I'll, I'll never forget. And this was probably about. 10 years ago, uh, I had a close friend I grew up with. He's so close that I would probably consider him more family than friend. And um, my contemporary at the time, musically, because you, you know, I've mentioned that probably ad nauseum that I started in entertainment and music. And um, and he, I was, uh, I had a contemporary here. He's a great producer, great singer. His name is Rio. You can go and um, find his music on iTunes if you want people <laughs> and uh, you'll like it. And I was just, I think I was just in one of his music videos. Um, I think I was in one of his music videos, but I think it's not released yet, which is why I said it that way. But so we've re- remained friends for now 25 years, but I remember this other friend, the one that is like a brother to me, he came to me one day and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, he said, does it hurt a little bit to know that, um, you know, you're not doing art anymore that, you know, Rio's still at it. And I, I, I looked at him and I was like, I just recorded a song last night, but I, but it hit me, but it hit me that I wasn't projecting that creativity out into the world. So people no longer saw me as Chris, the producer and songwriter of solace, which was the name of my singing group that I had for years and years and years. But they saw me as, uh, a guy who is in the business of helping entertainers or helping people move forward and things like that. So um, sometimes it's it's literally what you present and you do as an artist, you definitely get FOMO uh, about oh. other people creating things. So, so much. I mean, and you know, FOMO as a word or a phrase or a acronym didn't even exist no, and <laughs> you, had, you had early FOMO. You had early stage FOMO. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I had. And it was a lot to do with how I was perceived. I was coming down to L.A. and visiting friends all the time before 
I made the leap and moved here. Um, and I was looked at as this, you know, sort of tech executive figured it all out, has the money. Mm -hmm. She's the one who's going to take us all out to dinner. She's got it all together. And I was looking at them being like, they're doing what I'm supposed to be doing. They're pursuing, they're creating, and they don't see me as one of them anymore. And it really was, it took the move down here and kind of putting my stake in the ground. And I'm guessing you've probably had Ted Welch on the podcast already. Yeah, we love Teddy. Uh, So he's my best friend and he was in LA by then. And if it weren't for him sort of helping reintroduce me back into the fold and He's the one who reminded me, oh, you used to be a really kick-ass actress. You know, <laughs> you, know, you know how to direct people, but you also know how to get shit done. Like, you're a producer. And if it weren't, if it weren't for his sort of, like, reintroduction and reminding me who I had been and that I was still that person, I think it would have been a lot harder of a transition. That's a wonderful story. Yeah, we had this little running competition inside joke, like who gets mentioned more uh, on this podcast by our guest, Ted or Maki. Uh, they, they both get name dropped a lot, which uh, is a testament to who they are as performers, but also a testament to, you know, who they've been as friends and, and how they've supported people. Um uh, th- yeah. throughout the process, you know, the, the, the big thing about Ted that he's always told us is that, you know, he started with the biggest roles. And so he just thought, you know, it was just going to explode from there. And, 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 you know, there was, there was a little bit of humility that, that happened after that. So I'm sure there's been times he's turned around and needed you to support him and say, keep going, keep going. You're the guy who was on the help. You're the guy who was, um, you know, booking all this work and, and, and you're really, really good. And he is really good. And we're going to definitely talk about um, Wildman here in a moment, but I'm curious about, cause it feels like you took life crowd, but you knew it wasn't going to, you knew that wasn't the end game. Like you, like you're, you're a cerebral person. So uh, I assume even your subconscious is playing chess three moves ahead saying, okay, I'm down here. It may not work out with life crowd, but I'll be creating. And so, so how did, how did you go from life crowd to working with private road productions and, and William H. Mason? Um, well, private road was my company that I started. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I misspoke. Yeah. And sorry about doc, that. Doc- Dog Pond is um, Bill Dog, Macy's. Dog Pond is there. So that's the one I meant to say. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, um, Life Crowd made the decision for me, actually. I knew going into it that the idea that I could strike lightning twice with a tech startup was, um, you know, the odds were not in my favor. And um, was there a lot the of first- VC money? like in the game at that point to what the way it is now, or was it tons, 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 probably even more. Um, and, uh, within the first year, uh, life crowd made the decision to move to Chicago and they were working with Groupon and sort of a aqua hire situation. 
Um, now explain that. What is, a, what is an aqua hire? Aqua hire is basically when larger companies that are doing similar things want to hire the best talent. So instead of just outright buying a startup, they sort of acquire all their talent Got it. Um, Got it. and fold them into uh, something bigger. And I had just gotten to LA less than a year ago and I was not leaving to go to Chicago, not going back to Midwestern winters and not leaving uh, my friends in the community that I had rebuilt. So um, that's when I started. Um, I took some time off. I made my own stuff um, with private road productions. I was helping other people produce. That was sort of my banner and had been going back to New York City. I'd sort of revitalized it and um, landed the job, um, with William H. Macy and his production company, um, Dog Pond through, uh, friends and, um, you know, through that networking stuff that we were talking about and relationships that I had fostered since NYU, since college and, um, working at Dog Pond was my first real taste of, film and television at a much higher level than I'd ever been exposed to it before. And you guys were very close, um, uh, Bill Macy and you, and, um, how did you land the position? So for those listening out there that might be new and looking for positions like this out of film school, what do they have to do? What, what, what's, what are some of the key pieces of advice you might give on, on how to land an important assistant role like this? Well, I think you have to be willing to be an assistant um, and be willing to be uh, the person that is not always doing the creative and is not the face of anything. So you have to be humble. I think that I was lucky I was fortunate that the opportunity came my way. It could have gone to anyone else, but honestly, I was in the right place at the right time um, and able to take on what they needed um, and fill, fill a role in the production company sort of as part assistant, part operations, part estate management. I did a little bit of everything And being willing to do that is how I got in the door, Um, besides knowing friends from NYU, where Bill had Atlantic Theater Company, and all those connections had just sort of built to me getting my resume to the right person. Isn't that that life right there? (laughs) It is all about who you know. And... um, I think that that is not easy to hear when you're sitting at home or in your car, maybe listening to this podcast being like, well, I'm in the middle of Iowa. I don't know anybody. So where do I start? And I think you just start by making things and through that making connections and working with people. 
Yeah, there's so much to dig into right there that I that I really need to comment on and that you've touched on there. One is that because um, I will amend to what you said, it's it's who you know, but that plays back to our original question around networking. Um, if you're a good networker, then who you know becomes a superpower because you don't just know them. You didn't just hand them your business card as you referenced earlier. You talk to them. You, you know that you really know them. You talk to them, you know who they are, you know who their family is, you know where they live, you know what their ambitions are. Take the time to get to know people. And then that person will find you to be genuine enough to put their name on the line to refer you to someone else. Um, that's, that's been critical uh, in my life in a way that I could not quantify. Um, and, and so, and, and if you're in Iowa, I'd go back to what, uh, Ryan Hart, uh, the producer, Ryan Hartsock told me, which is produce where you are. Um, a lot of times, um, you're going out and you're looking to be part of a crew or you're looking for work, but there's a lot of power in being able to package, uh, just ask Michael Ovitz, but <laughs> being able to package, uh, your own work and then sell it is probably uh, the most underrated um, but powerful way to get started as an independent creative. So yeah, I'll, absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think in addition to that, it, you know, the produce where you are is is one of the ways that you make connections is create opportunities for people who are like you. Create opportunities for people who know different things than you know, who have different skill sets than you have and work together. And all of a sudden you're creating your own network and that network will grow and grow and grow just by providing opportunities. And like you said, being, being genuine, admit when you know something, admit when you don't know something and just make shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, you, you'd be surprised what you learn and how authentic you come off uh, when, when you do that, when you're just just be you and, and just go out and, and, and make real connections, not business card connections and produce where you are. Make what you know, make something um, uh, and then connect. And the key word is package. So con connect with people that know something you don't know and then add people to your work instead of trying to be the face of every single thing. Um, I, I know that we consulted on a film where the, um, the director really wanted to do everything, but because that director wanted to do every single job, the film was hurt by it because it made him um, not focus on uh, story and direction as well as he could have. Um, so I, I, I think I think the packaging of something is so important too. Um, when you were working uh, at Dog Pond, you uh, once tweeted out, "Cigarettes are the new ice cream," and that seems oh, like no. <laughs> that seems like <laughs> such a seems like such a filmmaker thing to to say because it just fits perfectly. And even if it's not taken literally, it's perfect. And so I'm wondering, as that bit of advice you shared with the world on Twitter, what, what was the best advice you got uh, from? Uh, William Macy. Um, you know, that, that goes really deep. And I think you would have to go, um, a few tweets back where I think ice cream was my vice and then it was cigarettes <laughs> and then it was back to ice cream. But anyway, <laughs> um, and you will find now that, uh, productions are not the, you know, 
smoky smoke break things. You know, we're all Mm -hmm. a lot healthier. But um, Bill Macy was not one to give advice. And I think what he gave me was trust and encouragement. And he brought me along on the ride of his third act when he was still acting, Mm -hmm. still writing, but also um, becoming a director, directing his first episode of television um, on Shameless and directing his first uh, independent features, Rudderless, The Layover, later on Crystal. And um, we were in uncharted waters together. And I think that was an amazing place to be where I got to observe, I got to learn, but I didn't have the pressure of being the face. I didn't have the pressure of it being my project, but I got to be involved in everything from soup to nuts every meeting, every casting, um, putting together the budget, the money, the production lookbook. And I used that opportunity and I soaked it all in. And that experience with Bill and with Dog Pond is what gave me the confidence to say, oh yeah, I can produce and direct a movie. Yeah, Ted, let's do this. We can, we can totally do this. And I don't think without what I learned from Bill and from working with Showtime on Shameless and with Braun Studios on The Layover and, and other companies that I got exposed to, I don't think I would have had the confidence to take on a feature, to think that I could convince people in my ideas and to give me money. And so I think the biggest thing that I got from Bill was when I went to him and I said, I'm going to go try to direct this movie. Um, he gave me his blessing and said, directing is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Directing is hard. Directing is really hard. I don't know if you know this, Jax, but directing is hard. <laughs> but you can go do it. And you you can do it. And you know what? That, at the time, that meant everything to me because I felt like I could do it. And I could do it because of what working with him had exposed me to. And, you know, sort of the rest is history. That's about the time when we met. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, directing is hard. I actually don't know how directors do it. I admire directors so much. Um, I'm a lover of, of, of the creative in general, but but directors, I, I don't know how. Um, uh, even when a director does a bad job, I'm kind of still in awe that they got it done in, in, in general. So I, <laughs> that's that's yeah. how much I admire directors, because it's 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 detail overload. Um and your brain is on a swivel um, and you're always problem solving. So I, I also know why it's exhilarating. Um, 
but just trying to compare that to, you know, producing film or producing music. Um, I think it's a little bit harder. Um, you, uh, uh, also produced, did you produce, uh, the feature, was it a feature film or a short hand of God? Ah, hand of God was the first, um, kind of big foray into film for, for me. Um, it was a short, um, it was meant to be a five part web series that sort of translated through doing the actual project into a short film. And, um, that was the first time that on my own, I had to create a budget hire a crew, cast a project, um, find the locations and make something happen from soup to nuts. Uh, and I did it with a lot of trusted friends, um, Ted being one of them. And, uh, a lot of it was shot, um, in friends houses, uh, something that I still do to this day, um, mm-hmm. because locations can be super expensive but mm-hmm. lean on your friends and treat their property nicely. And uh, you can come up with a lot of creative ways to um, have different locales in your film. But yeah, that hand of God was the first time that I um, kind of dove head first into something. And that was pre uh, working at dog pond that happened before. And so I knew very little at the time and um, I learned a lot since <laughs> Right. And I don't know how the, I haven't, uh, full transparency. I have not gotten an opportunity to watch the movie yet. So I don't know. Did you think it turned out well? And, uh, did you see something in Anthony Kerrigan that you thought, Hey, that guy's going to break out? Oh no. Um, we already thought he was the shit, the bees knees. Um, (laughs) he, you know, uh, known back since college and that's, the thing is I came up with a lot of really talented people and a lot of like really, you know, not my Rolodex, but really cool names that, um, I could drop. But back then, um, we didn't know what we were doing. I wouldn't say that the film is out there for anybody to see. You can see a few trailers, um, and teasers. Yeah, that's all we the trailer. Made. That's all the trailer um, and teaser. Yep. But uh, the final product did not turn out at all like we thought. Some of the footage was too dark. Sometimes the sound was messed up. Um, We didn't shoot enough of what was on paper. And um, it was a tremendously painful learning experience because once we got into editing and realizing that we didn't have what we needed to tell the full story and no more time or resources to go back and, and fix re- it. Reshoot, and do, yeah. Yeah, no, no pickups, no, no reshoots. <laughs> we, you know, um, that wasn't happening. It was, um, incredibly disappointing, but also, um, kind of incredibly fulfilling because it was the first time that I did something all by myself 
and brought together all the people that I wanted to be working with. And that was kind of my big stake in the ground and in moving down to LA. And that was the thing that let me know you made the right decision. It was hard to walk away, but this is what you're supposed to be doing. And these are the people you're supposed to be doing it with. Yeah. It's, it's, everyone needs that, that, that initial experience. I think for Nick and I, we did that uh, project down in Atlanta and it, it's crazy how self-aware we were because we had had all this experience in project management and consulting and entertainment and all this stuff. And we were driving. I remember we were in our car <laughs> headed to the set in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, we just looked at each other and said, this is going to go poorly. <laughs> we, yes. we, we don't know what we're doing. Um, we've, we've mitigated all the risks we know about, but there are a thousand risks we have no clue about. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to take really good notes and we're going to mark and notate everything we didn't like. And then we're going to study it like it was a textbook in school. And then we're going to be, we're going to 10 X our knowledge in one, uh, in, in one experience. And that's literally what we did. Um, Yeah. Which is great. I think that, you know, if you can have the foresight to approach it like that, that's amazing. I cannot say that I did or any of us involved in Hand of God did. We thought that we knew everything and we did dove in headfirst and we were the shit at that point. Everybody had already worked on some TV shows. People were making names for themselves and, you know, this was it for us. And it was a colossal failure in terms of we didn't get into the festivals that we wanted to get into because we didn't even get the final product that we had intended. But the hindsight of what we learned, um, you know, and which didn't come until much later until the disappointment sort of, um, receded, uh, then, then it was the realization that, oh, okay, we did do this. It's really hard to do something and to finish it. And we did that. And now let's go do it again. And that's where, um, things like storytelling and squirrel and donkey, other projects that I worked on around the same time came about. Yeah. You had the storytellers campaign and you had squirrel and donkey and there hasn't been an episode of squirrel and donkey that I've seen that I didn't laugh out loud at. Um, Dick appreciation is so funny. Um, uh, there was another one I watched before too. Um, damn, I can't remember the name of the actual episode, but, but Ted was so annoying in it and it just was making me laugh so bad. Um, uh, so yeah. looking back on squirrel and donkey, is there anything you would have done differently today, um, to, uh, drive that, that just knowing how funny it, it is, to maybe drive that web series into a, um, uh, a 30 minute series that, that might air on comedy central. I think, um, we, we had always intended it for, for it to be short form. Um, that all of those episodes were produced with zero dollars, um, money for food, um, trading favors, I think, um, that project also 
taught me the most about directing because we were pulling styles and shots straight from uh, Peep Show, which mm-hmm. was the, a British series, which is now getting remade this many years later with two females. Wow. Um, we, we were so into that point of view filmmaking style because it seemed like something we could do with the resources that we had, with the people that we had one boom mic, one camera, mostly handheld every once in a while on sticks. And, um, looking back, I wish that we had, um, more time, but all of us, we were working day jobs. We were, um, you know, the actors were out there auditioning and, um, working. I was working full time, you know, the, sometimes the, the sacrifice in a project is what you have to do to survive. So while it was this wonderful thing that we were able to come together and do on the weekends, it wasn't something that any one of us could take on full time and give it the attention that it needed to make it more successful online to get better views, um, and to translate it into something bigger. That was always our hope. But I think, um, it's one of those cases where we just didn't have the manpower, the bandwidth, the time. Yeah. And and that comes down to maybe the, the faith that that's the project that's going to launch you versus something else you're auditioning for, you know, um, as well, yeah. kind of plays it was, into it a little bit. Absolutely. And it was still, I mean, it was a way for all of us to flex our creative muscles and to own something, you know, when these guys were going out and doing, you know, three or four days on an episode of Grey's Anatomy, um, or, you know, a small part in an independent feature, there's no ownership in that. You show up, you do what you're told, you are lucky if you get to create a character or add your own flair in, but it's much more, um, you know, you are at the mercy of someone else's vision. Whereas this was something that was all us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Joe, the guy who was filming a lot of it and, and running the camera was just learning how to use that camera. And I was just learning how to direct comedy and, and quick cuts and to tell people where to be and when, and, um, you know, the guy that we had doing sound was somebody who had bought his own equipment and was trying to like make a business out of it, but hadn't really learned how to use it yet. And so there's times when I'm holding the boom and directing and, you know, doing the makeup and getting the props ready. And it was a way for all of us to have ownership, to be creating mm-hmm. And, and, and to show our skills. It's something that I still point to today, even though the quality is really low res and the content is very much, you know, dick and fart jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something I'm really proud of. I think you should be. I'm, I'm telling you, if you're listening to this, go find Squirrel and Donkey Show. 
uh, on YouTube or in Vimeo and you will laugh. I mean, it's as simple as, and it could be dick and fart jokes, but Hey, um, there's a universal language when it comes to comedy. I think there were, I think, um, I heard this somewhere. I can't, I can't remember the article. I read it, but there are five types of jokes that it doesn't matter what culture you live in, uh, what your exposure to technology is, um, what language you speak, you'll laugh at it. And it's something like getting kicked in the nuts, falling down steps, uh, farts, and uh, there, there, um, there are two others uh, that probably sound terrible. Um, well, it's, uh, but, it's that, but 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 it's universal. It's funny, yeah. No matter who you are, it's the physicality of the Three Stooges style, and there is pretty much no context where a fart won't be funny. <laughs> I can't think of one. I'm laughing right now. It's it's so true. Exactly. Uh, it's perfect. So, um, uh, you've been so generous with your time, Jackie. I, I, I swear I, I do. I love talking to you. I probably could talk to you for two more hours. No problem. Um, but, but that, I only have a couple more questions. Is that cool? That's great. All right. Perfect. So, uh, your feature film wild man, it was produced by women, uh, directed by you and Stephanie black, who, has been on this podcast and had wonderful things to say about the film and wonderful advice for our audience. Um, this was, um, I think we even, I think uh, Leslie powers associate produced on it. And, and this was a really, um, female led, um, crew. And, uh, you've also got uh, work on your resume with, I am, uh, I am a theater uh, again, Stephanie and then Christine Woods, who's been on this podcast as well. And, um, you do a lot of female driven work. And so I'm wondering why is that so important to you? Um, what does it mean to you? I think with, I'll start with wild man specifically. It's such a dude driven story. I think there's a lot of universals in there about growing up becoming who you are, letting go of your past, things like that. But it's, um, it's a script that had mostly males in the leading roles and, um, a very male story. So I thought it was super important that everything surrounding the storytelling was coming from an alternate lens um, you know, adding the female gaze into this story and making it very equal, everything from our crew, uh, to the, uh, post-production, uh, soup to nuts. And we did that. We had a very equal 50, 50 crew, male and female identifying. We had, um, a woman in every single department, um, Mm -hmm. from pre to production to post-production. And, um, it's, it's always been important to me because most of my role models and most of what I saw coming up through the ranks. And even now, um, the mentorship happens with men. And I don't have that many people that I can point to and say, oh, she did this, this, and this. So 
if I do that, I might get there. And I think it's something that, you know, the whole industry is focused on now. It's happening a lot more. Um, but for me, it's something that I find comforting um, to be working with not people who have the same point of view exactly, but people who have similar life experience and a similar lens to apply to whatever their role is, whether they're acting or they're doing the makeup or they're adjusting the silks. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's kind of why I've always focused on it. And I'm, I'm not one of those people that's like, I get along better with dudes. I, (laughs) I love men and women equally. I think that we need to all raise each other up. You know, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. That's, um, I, I, I think I'm, I think it's really refreshing, um, to hear because there isn't a big, um, political, um, stance behind it other than, than let's, let's help each other, help each other, which is just something that, that is more about, uh, your moral code than about, um, you know, shoving a cream pie in the face of any man that's trying to create, you know? Yeah, sure. I think, you know, everybody's got a story to tell. It doesn't matter if you're what gender you identify with. Um, I think everybody's got a story to tell. Everybody's got a place Mm -hmm. to tell that story. And for me, the things that I like, the things that I watch have a balance to it. Um, You know, like applying my female lens to a story about a dude who gets drunk and is stuck on house arrest and helps a littler dude learn how to play football. I think it rounds out the storytelling when you have these multiple perspectives. You got a female lens on a, on, on learning how to play football and, and, um, that, that kind of segues nicely into my next question because you're behind the camera and you're looking at these things take place. And, um, I'm curious, what, what is your favorite scene of Wild Man? Oh, um, maybe what was your favorite scene as you watched the movie? What was your favorite scene to direct? And those don't have to be the same thing. Um, my favorite scene to direct, um, is also one that I like watching and I know, and we have so much more footage than you actually see in the film is when, Bo, the main character, gets arrested. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) that, you know, you're lucky when you get a touch of magic here and there in any project, any production. Um, And sometimes you don't ever get it and it's just grinding it out and dealing with the nitty gritty and that gets it done. Mm -hmm. That night in particular, you know, I feel Ted was touched with the creative stick Mm-hmm. He, he was on fire in terms of, um, what he was doing performance wise, 
we were having so much fun. It was a night shoot. We felt completely supported by the neighborhood and the community that we were shooting in. The Hendersonville Police Department was there keeping us protected mm-hmm. on the road that we were shooting on. And then there was all these neighbors and kids that brought out their lawn chairs and were watching us film. And it felt amazing. It felt like we were seen. We felt cool because we were the ones with the cameras and the lights. And there were these kids in their lawn chairs that thought that they were seeing a piece of Hollywood. And it was a great night. And it turned out to be a really great scene. And we have amazing outtakes from it. So that was my favorite scene to direct. My favorite scene in the movie, I think, it's it's that, and also um, I love watching uh, the scene where uh, Bo and Laura, uh, Ted Welch and Christine Woods, have their little picnic mm-hmm. and reconnect. And that was probably my least favorite scene to direct, but it's my favorite to watch. That was a hell of a night. <laughs> yeah, they seem very natural together. They have a good rapport, and... Um... Uh, the, as far as the arrest scene goes, I always think that obviously Ted is amazing in that. And um, uh, there are certain lines that I've, that, you know, I've seen the movie a lot and uh, th- there's a line he says that I won't give away here, uh, but uh, that makes me laugh every time I see it, even to this day. So mm-hmm. it was genuinely funny, but the underrated thing about the scene was how well Brandon Hirsch played the straight man. Mm-hmm. Because if he didn't come off as a real cop that was a real threat to Bo, then I don't think it would have been as funny. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, he was so serious and so played it so straight. And it's this underrated little thing where, where as the viewing audience, we're, we're understanding like Bo is in deep shit and he doesn't realize it. And if, and if Brandon doesn't do his part there, then, then um, it kind of all falls apart. So Great, great stuff. So your um, latest work is called It's Your Call. This looks intense. This looks like it's about tech and privacy and stalking. <laughs> it's I, not. <laughs> this is, this is, this is, this is, uh, it kind of comes off that way. It's, uh, what is, what is It's Your Call about? So uh, it is intense, I would say, in, in that technology plays, uh, the third role in the film. Um, but mm. it is ultimately about a relationship and a love story and a relationship that dissolves over distance and over technology. So the, um, the two actors are never in the same room together. All their acting happened through, computers and phones. Who were the the leads? Meryl Hathaway and Tyler Labine, Mm -hmm. both brilliant comic actors who give very emotional performances in this short where, um, you know, we see the dissolution of a long-term relationship that happens um, over phone and FaceTime and Skype. Very good. 
Very, very good. I thought you were going to say something else again. You caught me there with the, <laughs> with the, with the pregnant pause. Uh, <laughs> I didn't want to cut you off. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, I guess it's not available now because it's on the festival run. Uh, what are your goals with the film? Uh, well, we, we have, um, we've done a couple festivals, this Palm Springs international shorts fest that's coming up, um, next week in June. Um, we're showing a few screenings there and I think we'll continue to do the festival rounds this, the rest of, uh, the circuit. And then I hope that it's available somewhere, uh, like, uh, Amazon prime where everybody can watch it. But, uh, our main goals with it were to get it seen on the festival circuit. Um, I think, you know, if you go in to a short film, hoping to make money or win an Oscar, that's really the wrong intentions behind it. Amen. Uh, (laughs) that is, that is so true and it cannot be said enough. So, uh, that's awesome. I know it's going to be successful and I'm excited to see it. I hope I get the opportunity to see it. And, um, Jackie, this is always great talking to you so much fun. Can't thank you enough. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media and on the internet and where they might even see some of your work. Okay. Well, um, I am on Twitter since you pulled up an ancient tweet of mine, <laughs> but I don't think I've, I've tweeted recently. I'm on Instagram at Jacksified. Yes, I know it sounds like an AOL screen name from 1997, but that's it. Uh, Jacksified on social media. That's where you'll find me. And that is spelled J-A-C-Q-S-I-F-I-E-D. Yes. Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So go find her. It'll be fun. And yeah, you used to be super active on Twitter and I've read, you know, doing research for this. I, I read all your tweets, uh, <laughs> going all the way back to the beginning of Twitter. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I was a early adopter before it was even public. Yeah. You, yeah, you were, you were on it and you were, it was awesome. I think you should come back. I mean, just, just hit us with a tweet storm. <laughs> In the second half this year, just, just put it on us. That's what I say. Well, I might do that. I'm starting to, um, watch, I have time to watch a lot more stuff. And I, I'm thinking that maybe I need to do a little more commentary on all the amazing content TV film that I'm watching. So maybe I'll do that instead of just using Twitter to bitch about things that, um, I find, (laughs) egregious and unjust in this world. I think you should do both because I think the world needs your, your combination of intelligence, sass and wit. So, uh, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. And, um, last question, uh, do you have uh, any parting thoughts for our listeners? Um, you know, I think I've said it, I'll just repeat it again. The best, Thing that you can do for yourself is not be limited by what you have in front of you, um, but to just go and make it. And that's the name of this podcast. That was a really good branding on my part. Um, <laughs> but just go and and create. And if all you can do is um, sit with a piece of paper and a pencil and write, then just write and start there. And if you can take your iPhone out and you can start shooting things, then start there. And if you make it, you will learn. And if you will learn, you will grow 
and you will figure out all the rest as you move along. And that's where you got to start. Love it. Jackie, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I'll see you soon. Sounds great. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects and social media feeds, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash make it. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. If you do that, the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.